0: Well, I have the privilege uh, of uh, speaking to you tonight, and when I spoke about this with Tommy earlier in the week, I did one of the most unusual things that pastors don't normally do, and I said, you know, pastor, people got to sit out there in the elements, and we probably ought to go for a, a shorter sermon, so I actually asked for less time, and then, of course, I overprepared. And so we'll we'll be out of here before the sun sets, Uh, but it it was for a good cause. The scripture I want to bring to you today, I'm going to kind of hold in abeyance because I want to keep you thinking about something that's coming up. We're going to read it here in just a bit, but what I want to do instead is I want to talk to you a bit about little things. You know, you may be familiar with some of those sayings, it's the little things that will get you. Or said the other way, watch out for the little things. My military career constantly reinforced attention to detail. Attention to detail, attention to detail. Now sometimes this is said rather positively, particularly around Christmas time when the value of minutiae seems really important, like, well, you know, big things come in small packages. The text we're gonna look at tonight is one of the little things in the Gospels. In fact, as a matter of just pure narrative, it is the shortest story of its kind in the Gospel. It actually only takes up 18 words in the English 11 in the Greek. Yet this short little narrative has the deepest and longest biblical history roots of any other pericope in scripture. It goes back from the time it was spoken, 1,400 years. There's a great depth So what we're going to look at. It carries to us great stories, complex lessons on faithful living, and miracles. Yet it's so small, it is often overlooked among the 34 other miracles recorded across the Gospels that Jesus performed. It has big lessons for us today, and so I invite you to come along in heart and mind and consider or reconsider with me the big message of a simple little event and as you come along i want you to bring three tools i want you to bring your bible that which is hidden in your heart that you know and the one that you can digitally awaken or turn the page to and next i want you to bring your second tool i want you to bring your whimsy I had to look that up in the dictionary so I knew exactly what it meant. I'm not talking about fantasy because I'm going to review with you an actual historical event. It really happened. No, I'm using the word whimsy in the idea of your and my ability to project ourselves with our imagination into a situation of life that we were not present at, but we can certainly identify with. And that's a little whimsical. It takes takes a little bit of skill, imagination, and yes, even though we're at church, fun. So feel good about it. It'll be all right. I want you to bring your scripture. I want you to bring your whimsy. And the third tool I want you to use as we unpack this Little narrative tonight is an open ended accountability. I want you to be willing to apply and consider what this miracle story 2,000 years ago has to say to us today on August 1st in the 21st century. Now, if you're listening today and you're not a student of the scriptures or maybe you're a brand new student and you're just learning or you're a young person and you've got your new Bible and you don't know much about bringing the Bible to this, that's all right. Welcome to the opportunity. You got all the whimsy you already need and all I ask for you to do is listen carefully to be responsible with what you hear. The scripture part is on God. He tells us that his word always accomplishes every purpose he sends it to. It never returns void. He tells us in Jeremiah he's watching over his word to perform it. It's okay if you're new to scripture. Just hear God's word and he will carry it home. I'll lead us through three very broad categories, avenues of approach, if you will. And they'll be very broad because we have to go quickly. I shortened the sermon. The first one will be considering the themes of the scripture that are not mentioned, but are the background, the scenery, the backdrop, the back conversations that would have occurred that unfolds this miracle. So, first, we'll look at the themes. Second, We're going to exercise our whimsy, and we're going to project ourselves right into that conversation and just have a little fun with it, see how it turned out. And then finally, I will ask us to consider what we are now going to do about intentionally eavesdropping on a conversation in Capernaum 2,000 years ago. Matthew chapter 17, Matthew chapter 17, and we're beginning at verse 24. The scripture reads as follows, when they came to Capernaum, those who collected the double drachma or two drachma tax came to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? Peter answered and said yes and then when he came into the house Jesus spoke to him first and he asked him a question he said what do you think Simon from whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax from their sons or from strangers Peter must have thought for a minute and then he said from strangers and I imagine there was an eyeball exchange between Jesus and Peter maybe a little pause so that Peter could let what he just said sink in a little more and I bet Jesus kind of leaned forward kind of leaned into him like he's gonna give him a plan and he said with a nod yeah okay probably strangers However, so that you don't offend them, I want you to go to the sea, I want you to throw in a fish hook, I want you to take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for you and for me. And so ends the reading of the text. This is the miracle of the coinfish. The shortest miracle in the New Testament. With probably the biggest message. Now we can't get into all of it today, but oh boy, I'd love to unpack it with you over a long Bible study. Hoo-wee, it's got good stuff, good stuff. But I want to deal with you in the order in which I said, let's, let's consider some of the themes that are at work here, the back-channel discussions that were going on when this miracle just sort of narrative inserts itself into Matthew chapter 17. you got to go all the way back to Exodus chapter 30 with the Hebrews on the other side of the sea in the wilderness journey find out what's going on here with this double drachma tax I begin reading in Exodus 30 the Lord spoke to Moses saying when you take a census of the sons of Israel to number them then each of them shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord when you number them so that there will be no plague among them when you number them that is what everyone who is numbered shall give one half shekel According to the shekel of the sanctuary. A half shekel as a contribution to the Lord. For everyone who is numbered from 20 years old and over shall give this contribution to the Lord. The rich shall not pay more, the poor shall not pay less than the half shekel. When you give the contribution to the Lord to make atonement for yourself. And you shall take the atonement money for the sons of Israel, and you shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting, or the tabernacle, that it may be a perpetual memorial for the sons of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. One of the themes behind this conversation is the very notion that mankind, everyone that wears the flesh of humanity, is a sinner. And needs to come to grips with that fact and recognize their utter and complete dependence upon the God who created them and breathed life into their nostrils and brought them into being. And you cannot go through a life of service to God without living in recognition of and dependent upon his grace and mercy to save you from your sins that only God can do. And as a reminder of that indebtedness, every year, once a year, we will exact a temple tax, a two drachma tax, a half shekel from every male 20 years and older. And every time you do it, it will be a humility check. It will be an accountability check. It will revive your soul in relationship to a sinner and a forgiving God. That was the intent. And that was carried out for most of Israel's history. There were times when bad kings came into power and the tabernacle was transformed to the temple and then the temple was destroyed and then the tents of meeting were set back up and all kinds of things happened off and on. King Joash in eight 35, reestablished the, the temple tax and began collecting it again, and Nehemiah, when he went back and, under Cyrus the Great and rebuilt Jerusalem, reinitiated the temple tax in 535. So it was a continual up and down thing, but it was woven into the construct of Jewish awareness and biblical history that man owes God his soul. and we gratefully present to God a recognition of our dependence on him through this gift to the temple. So that's what this two drachma tax is all about. And so when the question comes up to Peter in Capernaum, as Peter is walking through his hometown, by the way, Capernaum is where Peter lived, you can check it out in Matthew 8 or Mark 9 or Luke 4, I mean Mark 1 or Luke 4. They all talk about Peter's house. As is walking around in Capernaum and is well known to all of his buds, the guys at the synagogue come up to him and say, oh, by the way, we're just checking. Your boss does pay the temple tax, doesn't he? It's kind of a, maybe a neutral question at best. Maybe there was some, some plot behind there because the only good answer to render was in the affirmative because you see by the time Jesus was on the scene 1, 1400 years after the temple tax had been instituted it had lost its, much of its spiritual grip and had become a political statement of being a legal and entitled member of the Jewish community you paid the tax to demonstrate you were a good pious Jew since the Romans had been on the scene you also paid the temple tax to demonstrate you weren't Roman. By golly I'm Jew. And it was anti-Roman as well. And if you were a good rabbi you made sure everybody knew and saw when you paid the temple tax so that your piety would be beyond question and your word would not be besmirched. Everybody knew Jesus Jesus used Capernaum as his base of operations in the area of Galilee. He did more miracles in Capernaum than in any other central spot all across Israel. In fact, when his family didn't know where Jesus was, they went looking for him in Capernaum. That's where he was most likely to be, and in fact, they found him. So Peter was well-known to his friends and his colleagues as a follower of Jesus. Jesus was well-known as a synagogue teacher. He did that all the time in Capernaum, and so it was natural for them to ask the question just to check it out. By the way, your, your boss pays the tax, right? It's also important to know that this tax was levied six weeks prior to Passover, and this particular event happens at the final Six weeks of Jesus' life on earth. Peter's already got a two-year history with Jesus. Well, of course, Peter sort of answers reflectively to the question. I don't think he really spent much time thinking about it. He just said, because of the way it was presented and what was at stake, your boss pays the tax. Sure, yes, leaving no question. Then he had to think about it on the walk home. And this is where we get into the story. He's walking home and he's saying, I just said yes to the fact that the man who I've seen calm a storm on the Sea of Galilee, that the man who grabbed my hand when i said lord save me when i was drowning after walking on water that the man i've seen heal paralytics and demons and a withered hand that the man even that healed my mother-in-law is a sinner that needs to pay a tax every year in recognition of his dependence on god I, i don't know if I can say that. And then he thought more recently, wait a minute. I, just a short time ago, Jesus had us up on a particular spot, all of us disciples together. And, and he said, yeah, who do people say I am? And, and we gave him different answers. And then he said, who do you say I am? And everybody was stammering around and nobody wanted to be the first. And I couldn't stand it anymore. And I said, well, you're, you're the Christ. Christ. You're the son of the living God, and I meant it, I believed it. How can I say, yes, he needs to pay for his sins? And so I imagine when Peter came home, he had that look on his face. Men, you know the look. I'm talking all to all you married men. You know the look. You've had some day at work or some event going on, and you come in the door and you're trying to just come home, but you know you brought it with you, and that wise woman of a wife that God gave you looks at you and she goes, What's on your mind? What are you thinking about? Because it just shows. You're ready to burst in there and just tell her what you've said or what you've encountered or what's gone on that day. And I bet you Peter came in just like that. He was he was ready to tell Jesus, oh man, I hope I didn't mess this up. But I said, but they said, I said, and he was ready to do it. (laughs) And the second truth of scripture is: God knows us. And the actual Greek word that is used says. And when he came in the house, Jesus went before his speech. He anticipated what Peter was going to say. Jesus spoke first. He didn't give him a chance. He just spoke right up. You know, when you both have something really powerful you want to say, sometimes you get together and you both start at the same time. oh, never mind. You go. No, no, you go. No, that's all right. You go first. No, come on. You go. Okay. I imagine something like that went on very quickly. Of course, it was in Hebrew, so it might have sounded different, but I don't know. The point is they were both eager to say something to each other, and Jesus took Peter and immediately put him on a different standard. He put him on God's standard and made him start to think about his soul and about what was at stake with what he chose. Caught him off guard, he said, uh, Simon, uh, when uh, the officers, when the king collects taxes, where, where does he get his money from? You know, that was the last thing Peter had on his mind. He was coming in there with all the righteousness and religious thoughts, and, and now this is a completely civil question about paying taxes. Whoever thinks about that until you have to. But Jesus says, Where does the king get his money? Does he get it from his family, or does he get it from all the subjects in the kingdom? Now, Peter had been with Jesus for a couple years, and so he probably didn't answer as quickly as you might think because he knows something's up. He probably gets a little reflective, maybe puts his hand on his hip, kind of looks at him, maybe looks down at the ground, kind of shakes his head. I did not see that coming. I, I did not see that what is he asking? Peter thinks about it a minute and says, hmm, there's no way that a king is going to charge anybody in his family his own flesh and blood taxes to live in the palace. That just it doesn't work that way. Your family. When your family, your family. I never charged my three daughters, Anna, Erin, and Jennifer, any money for the exemptions that I collected off of them. They didn't help me pay taxes to the U.S. government. Never even thought about. It. They were just family. They were part of living and being a family together. So Peter probably didn't think real hard, but he thought a little bit about that, and and then he said, "Well, there's no way that a that a." that a family member is gonna charge the family, that the head of the house is gonna charge his own kids taxes to live in his own household. So he he just answers abruptly, well, of course, strangers. You know, as soon as he said it, he knew what he said. You ever have that happen to you? As soon as you say something, oh man, I shouldn't have said that. But it's out. Jesus, I'm sure, took a pause and he looked back at Peter, kind of shook his head. He says, mm-hmm. Then the sons, I'm just checking this out. Then the sons are exempt, right? Peter, you know. Yes, that's right. The sons are exempt. The king doesn't charge the son any money to live in, this, in his palace. That doesn't make sense. The king doesn't charge his son. You are the son of God. I said that. Oh my God. Third principle is God is always good to us. He's always so kind. He's always so loving. Even in wrath, he remembers mercy. Jesus can see in Peter's eyes the what he's going through. He, he can feel his soul trying to decide between What do I do now? I'm I'm in the presence of of the Son of God again. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips, as Isaiah said. I'm a man undone. I I owe the temple tax, but this is God. He saves me. (laughs) Jesus, sensing all that, says, let's do this. I want you to go down to the sea. Now things are starting to brighten up. Peter thinks, man, I, I got to get out of this somehow. What, what What'd you just say? Go down to the sea? Oh, I, I am a professional fisherman. Th- that is what I do. Yeah, i like to go do something familiar right now because, man, I am really in unfamiliar territory. God's good. He says, I want you to go down to the sea. And I can see Peter start to brighten up. You ever watch little kids, little young ones who are suddenly discovering with you you a new idea or something fun they want to get back to and it begins to register on their face? They start to get excited and you see their eyes brighten and their their face kind of swells up and the chest goes back and they get a little antsy. Yeah, I want you to go down to the sea. Peter, yeah. Keep talking, yeah, yeah. And I want you to throw in a hook, a fish hook. Okay, yeah. You you do know that we fish with nets, and uh, in fact, when you called me, uh, you told me to leave my nets behind. And I mean, you've you've seen us fish. You've been on the boat with. Okay, a hook. Just one hook. I got it. Okay, a hook. Yeah. Once you go down to sea, I want you to throw in a hook. And now I want you to take up the first fish that comes up. Well. You know how many fish are in the Sea of Galilee? What's the chances of one little fish hook catching one fish in the whole Sea of Galilee that I just happened to pick to drop a hook into? Hmm? What's, how's that going to work? But I'm in this predicament because You're the son of God. I'm going with it. Okay, yeah. Go to the sea, get a hook, throw it in, bring up the first fish. And and by the way, when you bring that fish up, Peter, it's going to have a full shekel. It's going to have the exact amount you need to pay the tax for both you and I. And then you take that shekel, you shackle, You go pay the tax. End the discussion. Done. That's where the narrative ends. So what do we do with it? Two ideas. The first is that, that God will never be contrary to himself. He will not deny himself. He will never be something other than who he is. His, his character is absolutely trustworthy. You can bet your life and soul on him. Who God says he is and what God says he will do, he is and does. And so whether we want him to reform himself in our image, whether we want him to be the kind of God we want him to be or not, is immaterial to God. We can't bend him to meet our expectations. He doesn't work for us. And faith doesn't work that way. But God's still going to pay a temple tax. Why? Second point. Final open-ended conclusion. Because God is not slack concerning his promises, but is long-suffering that none should perish, but all should come to eternal life. God is not interested in using his godness in such a way that it crushes our soul and makes us so small and broken that we can't love him back. We just surrender. We just give up like... A beat, Forget it. Go, go do what you want to do. No. That's not how love works. Love never seeks its own. It's not arrogant. It's not puffed up. It hopes all things, believes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. So God gives us a chance to look up to him and to be renewed in his love and be transformed by his power and to come into relationship with him on his terms at a whole new level of life, eternal life. That's what this miracle is about. Lest we create an offense pay the tax now here's the here's sort of the epilogue to this some don't consider this a miracle some commentators actually say that this miracle never occurred because there's nothing in the Bible outside of this little statement that attests to it all the other miracles are attested to by witnesses there's nothing in the Bible that attests to this miracle except that it made it into the gospel of Matthew and the only one that knew about it was Peter Peter told somebody as part of his faith experience and it was so powerful that Matthew thought it should be a part of the story of the good news of Jesus Christ and it is forever part of the gospel because there's a precision to faith that will never let us go. God knew that Peter needed to go do the fishing. He needed to walk down to the sea. He needed to do what seemed to make no sense. He needed to take one hook and throw one hook into a big sea and pull up one fish that somehow would have the exact amount of change in its mouth to go pay the temple tax that God didn't owe. And he knew Peter would need that miracle, that deeply personal miracle, because in less than six weeks, Jesus would be crucified. And Peter, while he tried to defend him once in the garden then tried to deny him three times less than six hours later, And when you do your best and then you fall off and then you get messed up, where else is there to go with your faith except the last known place where faith really worked, really mattered, where you knew God and God knew you. That's where you recover from. Peter needed this fishing miracle because Good Friday was coming. fascinating in john chapter 21 after jesus has made his appearances after the resurrection he comes and he goes he comes and he goes the disciples are there over time and they're still pretty conflicted what does this mean he shows up he leaves he shows up he leaves what what are we supposed to do they believed in him but they didn't know what to do with their belief They were stymied. They were stopped for a while. Still faithful but unsure how to proceed. What do you do when you're still faithful but you're unsure how to proceed? Well, I know what I do. (laughs) I go back and remember the last time faith really worked. And that tides me over until it does again. All the disciples are gathered. Well, seven of the disciples are gathered together in John twenty-one. This is after Jesus has risen and appeared, and risen and appeared, and they're, it's, they're, they don't—they don't know what to do. They're just—they're just together because that's what they've done. They're together, and then out of the blue in this confusion, in this want of faithfulness to be valuable to God, to do something with my faith, but I don't know what. They're all confused. They're all conflicted. They're all happy Jesus is alive, but they don't know what it means. They're just kind of stuck. Peter says, you can find it right there in John 21, I'm going fishing. (laughs) I'm going back to where I know I met God. I'm going back to a miracle. Because that's where I'll meet God again, and that's where God will refresh my soul, and that's where I will know it's okay that I don't know. I just live with what I know and be His disciple. miracle of a coinfish. What do you know about your faith today? What do you know about the miracles of God that work in your life to bring you to him? Where can you go when You may be discouraged or distraught or confused you're not wrong you're not living weird you're just baffled you don't know if it makes a difference anymore you don't know what to do you're trying to be good but good isn't good enough and god is alive but you can't figure out where he is where do you go you go back to the spot where god and you had an encounter to that miracle where you know him to be so. And he says, you will find me when you search for me with all your heart. And another miracle takes place. Fellow believers and Christians and seekers In the Lord Jesus Christ. May God grant you his rendezvous point this week. May he take you in your special soul spot to where he is and may that moment and that memory be sufficient for all your needs because of Jesus Christ who says I will never leave you forsake you will you thank God with me for a moment in prayer Lord it is your goodness that we call upon it is your unrivaled love that we lean upon it is your presence that we depend upon even when we are lonely Thank you for your goodness, for your love, for your presence, and for those miracles that come in small packages. In your name, amen.